This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. I'm your host, Ryan Jury. We are about to explore practical solutions and hear about how out-of-reach results are obtained. Welcome back to the Leadership Series. I'm Amanda Laramie, your host of this portion of the Coleman Innovation Podcast. This episode, we finish our interview with CEO of Access Community Health, Donna Thompson. If you haven't already listened to episode 10, The Goal Remains the Goal, we suggest you go back and start with part one. In this installment, you'll hear Donna continue to talk about Access's operational metrics, as well as some exciting innovations in their model to improve quality care. I challenged the organization and I said, what would it be like if transportation was never a barrier to care? In addition to hearing innovations around transportation, you'll also hear Donna talk about innovations using their My Access app. Part of our link, you can register to vote. So from a social justice standpoint, you know, making sure our patients have voices. And finally, how is Access keeping an eye on the future of healthcare? And so we're building newer health centers with just very, very small waiting rooms. You get all that and more in this episode of the Coleman Innovation Podcast. Let's dive in. Donna, tell me how you communicate around those three metrics we've talked about, cycle time, no-show rate, third next available. You've said communication is really important. So how do you achieve that now? I have a CEO huddle every six weeks with the whole organization. And every six weeks, I report in on our systematic goal of of these three metrics. So again, almost four years later, I talk at the board meetings. And every six weeks, I bring it to the attention of our dramatic performance improvement metrics. The CEO huddle just isn't about the health centers. It's around alignment. And so I always uh, start off with our strategic plan. And we just just rolled out at our all-staff breakfast um, our strategic plan for calendar year 2020 through 2022. Mm -hmm. We've got five pillars within that. And I always say, what's our book of evidence in really making sure patient engagement, financial future, strategic partnerships, leadership and community health, um, you know, you know, those metrics, where are we at in really giving examples and metrics uh, driven examples of where we're at with that. DPI is part of the logistics of that. And as we move more into value-based care, I think, again, um, you can't move the needle on quality if you've got high no-show rates. Mm. You can't move the needle on quality if you don't have a meaningful infrastructure within that cycle time. You know, we use evidence-based approaches. Um, We've incorporated expert models, which is out of SAMHSA, and again, evidence-based model on how we can understand if someone has um, behavioral health needs and quickly needs to get to that behavioral health specialist. Um, we've got 14 of our sites that are MAT or medication assistant treatment sites. And so again, how do we not only incorporate that if there's a need to address addictions, but also chronic disease? 
disease. And so as we're looking at how do we incorporate those measures, DPI and some of the structural pieces are totally ingrained on our day-to-day activities. Just as a note here, SBIRT or S-B-I-R-T is an acronym that stands for Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. Um, SBIRT is an approach to the delivery of early intervention and treatment to people who may have either risk to or have a substance abuse disorder. And it's important when talking about how to approach um, delivering better quality care to patients. Um, And as we all know, you can measure quality care with certain quality metrics. And after this conversation, I transitioned Donna to talk about data at health centers and some of the controversial questions we get about data when it comes to patient care. So here's my question. Some health centers I've worked with and this is really common, you as a nurse probably know this, is that a lot of community health centers tell us, well, you know, I think our staff are more feelings oriented. Like we got into community health because we care about people, we have feelings, and and they often say that's kind of um, against this notion of a data-driven culture. So how would you respond to that? You know, as a nurse, um, heard whether I'm inpatient or wherever, always heard that for years. You know, we're here for the patients. You don't understand. Um, You know, our patients are different. Mm -hmm. Um, They're more complex. Um, I've heard it all. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of truth in that. I'm not going to dismiss it. However, as the CEO, I'm very clear with our organization that my responsibility is not only are we improving quality and outcomes, but I'm also responsible for keeping the lights on. Mm. And so um, it really is understanding the business side to it. Um, That's why as we get more into value-based care, MCOs are paying less and less a per member per month. Some, they're putting more and more into quality pools, more and more into outcome. And again, that's where everything's going nationally. And so we're not doing anyone a a service if we don't understand our data, understand um, our impact, understand our measures. And at the same time, and you know, I'm a big advocate for underserved populations. They deserve organizations that understand what the impact is. Otherwise, we're part of the problem, not the solution. Often health centers who are going through DPI check in with their board members because 51% of them are consumers or have to be patients to be on the board. Did they notice anything different about their visits? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Everything from, um, you know, I brought my book and some knitting and blah, blah, blah. And as soon before I could even sit down, they're calling me. Um, Two, um, really looking in, and I was listening for the qualitative part um, as our cycle time came down. Did you, all your needs get met? That's and huge. absolutely yeah. because even through this process, we were able to really dissect and know that a lot of the wasted time had nothing to do with the provider visit. It was all the other stuff. And so being systematic, having your workflows, having, you know, an understanding um, who's going to do what, Um, you know, as I say now, as we're doing our huddles every day in which the whole team huddles together 
around getting started for the day. It really is about organizing your work, anticipating the needs of your patients, but also making sure that once a patient comes in, we don't have any missed opportunities. Mm-hmm. And when you say missed opportunity, what do you mean by that? I mean everything around prevention. Okay. Um, you know, a patient could come in for a headache or they could come in for um, their blood pressure check, but, oh, they're due for a women's health visit. Um, or um, are they on pace for their colorectal screening? Mm-hmm. And so many times um, it's, you know, been episodic mm-hmm. historically. Um, and again, patients have have the right to say what they want to have focused on, but our what we need to do as caregivers is to say, and while you're here, let's really lay out a strategy around your total health needs. Right, right. And recognizing, I mean, we work with a provider right now who says for some patients, that's so important. Get them while they're here. They want to cover all that. And then there are some patients who don't have the time that day and recognizing that as well um, is really important. He always says, give the minutes to the patients who want the minutes don't give them to the people who don't, which I Absolutely. think is helpful. Yeah, at, Right. And at the same time, making sure that we're really pushing those preventive screenings, because yeah. so many times in under-resourced communities, once they get diagnosed, it's late onset. Yeah. And, you know, that's a history we want to turn back and go, mm. we can't keep repeating this. So when we look at issues around health disparities, when we look at issues around health inequities, it really is to look at the structural pieces, but also those pieces where we know um, certain communities where there are higher rates of, um, you know, from the cancers to chronic disease. How do we flip that script? When it comes to flipping the script and addressing quality care metrics, as you mentioned earlier, you can't really address quality in a full holistic way if you still have a high no-show rate. Um, Adrian and our team always says it's the patients who are no-showing that are the patients you really need to see. Um, Maybe they have chronic conditions, like you said. Maybe they're at risk for late onset. Um, So... What are some of the creative things you are doing now to address the no-show rate at Access? What we started in April um, was, um, and I, and I, again at our all staff breakfast last October, I challenged the organization and I said, "What would it be like if transportation was never a barrier to care?" Mm. Um, they worked very hard and got an Uber-like. Um, contract. And so um, now at every touch point, patients are asked about transportation needs. Eventually, um, we've got about 100,000 of our patients on my access app. And so eventually, we really want to build that in. So transportation will never be a barrier. As we're thinking about issues around social determinants, food insecurity, housing, you know, safety in the communities, um, you know, it's important to get a livery service to your provider, to that specialist, but it also could be equally important and should be to the food pantry. Um, and so, again, as we're really thinking beyond the walls, thinking about how we're utilizing our spaces and our partnerships, it really is incorporating a lot of the tools and knowledge that we learned from Coleman to take it to the next phase as we're looking at value-based care. And 
initiatives around that. Well, and Donna, you just listed, you know, that was going to be my later question about innovation is it sounds like you have innovations around transportation for patients. Um, you just said an app. What? Mm-hmm. Tell me a little more about the app. What does that do so for with, patients? Uh, so with our EHR, we have um, our My Access app. And so we test started testing about two and a half years ago. Uh, we took one health center that was in our city, one that was in the suburbs. Interesting enough, the health center inner city got more traction initially than the one in the suburbs. However, we got on a march about getting more of our patients on the app. And we know that um, as there are more smartphones um, and how consumers utilize their smartphones, making sense having an app. Our dream one day is that even though they can go on to send an email 24-7 to their provider, they can schedule, but how come they couldn't um, understand where the nearest pantry is. Um, Go in many times as we go into an Amazon experience, you might go in for one thing, but while you're there, Mm -hmm. um, you might, um, part of our link, you can register to vote. So from a social justice standpoint, you know, making sure our patients have voices, we want to incorporate many of our screening tools. So again, for some of our patients that might have a behavioral health issue or a substance use issue to be able to get those screening tools in. Many times a screening tool, the first two or three times, patients not might not be as honest, but two in the morning on Sunday where someone might be desperate, having that information mm. at their fingertips is going to be very important. Well, and no one wants to come in and spend 15 minutes fin- filling out paperwork when they walk Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, part of our whole process, as I talk about beyond our walls, even inside our walls, questioning everything. You know, I, I asked our team five years ago, why do we have waiting rooms? Because we know, especially in underserved markets, you'll get seen, but but guess how long you'll wait? And we were an example of that. Mm. And so we're building newer health centers with just very, very small waiting rooms. There's going to be a time where we're going to send a text um, or through the app to say, Donna Thompson, report to exam room 14 at Mm -hmm. 3 p.m. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, we just built a health center where when you go into the exam room, there's two comfy chairs. It's almost like a little mini living room because as we're promoting engagement and a conversation, building trust, um, and then um, also if there's like an accordion, other healthcare providers like behavioral health that mm-hmm. might need to come in. Um, and then there's uh, a sliding glass doors where then you can go into a traditional exam room. But again, trying to reset that experience, especially around engagement and building trust with vulnerable populations, because many times that's been a huge issue. Those are great innovations. And I love that you're thinking about it as you're building your new health center space, because I, you know, gone are the days of the really clinical hospital like sterile. Absolutely. You know, and you're thinking about it with the waiting room. What are some of the other innovations um, you or your team are leading at access, especially especially let me reframe that um, thinking about value based payment. 
for our hospital partners, um, we're putting our own care coordinators in the ED and we're catching our patients. Mm. And so trying to decrease hospitalizations, but also finding out if a patient goes into the ED, are they really hungry, um, couch surfing, mm. um, or they got off of their psych meds? Mm. And how do you really turn that script around? And so rather than um, waiting for our partners to come to us, we're going to them. Quite recently, we partnered with some behavioral health um, community specialists, a hospital team, and us really doing a virtual um, management of our high-risk population. The interesting piece, one of our partners, Catholic Charities, where historically it would take them three or four weeks to get a patient into supportive living, because we agreed to put all that information on one clinical record, happened to be ours, uh-huh. and that all participants were able to document in one clinical record. That time of getting a patient into supportive housing went from three to four weeks to two days. Wow. That, that if you are homeless or semi-homeless, is something that, again, making sure that we help promote that stability. Mm, that's wonderful. And I love sending care coordinators to the hospital, too. I think most people see that on the other end when they're trying to reduce their rate and they're like, oh, these hospital follow-ups just aren't showing up, you know, and it's like, well, we have to change the whole system. How do we Absolutely. get them connected to us? Absolutely. You know, one of our other partners, um, the Chicago Greater Food Depository, um, we started asking our patients who were our highest risk patients, again, risk stratifying, knowing your data. Um, And we know that there's a smaller percent of our patients that are the higher costs that really drive up the cost. So focusing in on those patients, we also started asking and we built in our system that every patient is asked about food insecurity. Mm -hmm. So if you are one of those high risk patients, if you're food insecure, we even doubled down more and said, what would it be like if we delivered meals to you? Mm -hmm. And And so what we found out is some of our patients did not have refrigerators or stoves. And we said, let's go ahead, if it's okay with our patient, to put together, you know, get them a microwave, get them a refrigerator. That's a cheap investment. Uh, But what we also found is that they liked the meals so much that for some patients that were hard to reach, they always told the driver of the food truck where they were at. Uh Not necessarily the provider, not necessarily the pharmacist, but it was the driver of the food truck who would deliver meals once a week always knew where our patients were at. Mm -hmm. So again, um, to me, part of the innovation is understanding the different roles and how they touch our patients, but also understanding who might have a better bead on your patient activity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And when you are making these changes, so you mentioned one about asking about food insecurity when patients come in. Is that something that you had to build into your templates in your EHR system? Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, many times with 
relationships, um, strategic relationships. You might be serving the same patient populations. You both have strong missions, but it's all about the detail. You know, part of working with Coleman, and I think, again, the rigor we had to understand in order to focus in on the metrics and have an impact is the same rigor and detail you have to have when you partner uh, with organizations. And so as we partnered, one, we learned around evidence-based questions to assess food insecurity. Mm. And then through that partnership, really, what's the best way to get food to our patients? On our after-visit summary, if anyone's positive for any of those three questions, the after-visit summary will show them, based on their zip code, the newest or the um, their um, closest pantry to their home. Oh, okay. As so that's well, something you, you had to develop. Absolutely. Okay. As well as how they can sign up for SNAP benefits and if they're eligible for. For SNAP benefits? Right. Absolutely. And that's, again, for food stamps. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so, again, to be able to give that type of currency to a patient as they're exiting their visit. I want to thank you so much for doing this interview with us. It's it's um, really heartening for me to see six plus years later how yeah. well you guys are still doing and how well you know the data off the, off top, the top of your head. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Is there anything left that you want to share before we sign off? You know, many times, um, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords around innovation, but I think true innovation is really um, – simplifying sometimes very complex um, issues and taking the time to really dive in and having the patience for the journey. Um, You know, I can remember when we first started and everybody was impatient for an outcome. It took us about a couple of years, two or three years before we really started seeing a lot of systematic change. And so I think, again, it's staying the course. Um, It's saying that if you're going to invest, that this isn't something that's going to be on the shelf in, in eight or 12 months. It really is something that you bolt into your culture Um, One of the things that we do at every orientation is we teach about DPI. Mm -hmm. Um, And so every new employee, I don't care what area they come in, um, IT, HR, whatever, they hear about dramatic performance improvement. And it's taught an orientation for to every clinical person. That's the type of um, investment. But that also is how you can continue on that innovative track. Thank you for having me. I love that quote from Donna. Have patience for the journey. So true. Thanks again, Donna, for sharing all of your wisdom on our podcast over the last two episodes. I also want to thank Jonathan at Bionic Squid and Ryan Jury for all of their help producing this podcast. Next time, we hear from not one, but two leaders, Dr. Dawn Hout, CEO, and her partner, COO, Melinda Rosa. They're speaking to us from Indianapolis, Indiana. Don't forget to subscribe so you can hear our next episode with two fabulous leaders who have taught me a thing or two about leading in community health. You don't want to miss it.